Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing radiation, information crisis, and the management of risk. Our guest is Dr. Laura Belts Imaoka. She is an assistant professor of instruction and assistant dean of academic affairs for the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. She received her PhD in visual studies from the University of California, Irvine, and her MA in anthropology from California State University, Northridge. Her work has been published in the journals Communication, Culture, and Critique, The Canadian Geographer, Environment and Planning A, and the Media Fields Journal. Her research interests engage the areas of visual studies, film and media studies, and critical geography, with a particular interest in the political economy of geospatial technology and the geospatial imagination of disasters. Laura, welcome to the Global Media Cultures podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Juan. I'm glad to be here. I want to start by asking you about these research interests. Um, how did you come to be interested in these very topics? Why do you think they're an important area to study? So, I mean, the article that we're going to be discussing is part of a larger body of work which addresses this inundation of society screens with interactive maps. Um, we probably think first of Google Maps and geolocative aspects of social media, but also something like map traffic reports or in the local morning news. So we have this convergence of maps with mass and social media and mobile technologies, which influences how and when we consume and communicate information about the Earth's surface. Um, and this technology, which is often called geospatial technology or geographic information systems, it's really this black box technology, if we want to use Bruno Latour's sort of um, notion there. Um, and that is it's technical, it's scientific work that's behind what we interface with is made sort of invisible by its own success. We see its output, its usefulness rather than its complexity and its oftentimes deviousness in terms of data privacy. Um, so for me, opening that black box of technology, which is sort of a social constructivist approach to it, um, is trying to understand those internal workings. So my research has looked at geospatial technology, the industry itself. Um, I was looking at a, country, a, a company called Esri, which is the largest GIS company globally. Um, its branding of its technology, which is this consumer history that dates back like the last half century to become this ubiquitous sort of machine that we see today, um, as well as considering the government agencies, the transnational digital corporations like Google, um, the everyday person involved in that data collection and mapping practice, as well as the media and media practices that bring forth um, interaction with that data. And so for me, you know, the thing that I'm really interested in here is sort of maps as media. So as media maps, they sort of mix with other forms of media, they produce meanings and understandings. And we always are reading these maps in their media context. So, you know, television news broadcast, online social media sites, um, and through our smartphone applications. So it's relevant to understanding that technology. Um, I think it's even more cogent when dealing with disasters and ongoing cases of risk. So maps, they make global and local risks visible, um, but invisible are those institutions, media practices, the individuals involved um, in producing and essentially curating geographic data into visual narratives and interactive databases. Um, so, you know, I kind of have this like approach to, um, you know, maps. Maps are sort of my main interest, um, but it goes further into thinking about just where they're embedded and what narratives they're being used within. So today we're discussing your article, Rain with a Chance of Radiation forecasting local and global risk after Fukushima, which came out in the edited collection, Extreme Weather and Global Media, published by Routledge in 2015. 
Can you give us a brief history of this essay? Like when you began working on it, how did the project sort of come about and whether and how the ideas changed in the process of, of researching and, and writing it? Sure. So it was an extremely early dive into my dissertation research. Um, the call for papers was really generously set forth to me by one of my advisors at UC Irvine, Dr. Victoria Johnson. And at first, I wasn't entirely certain of looking at Fukushima through the lens of an extreme weather event, essentially class it in the same frame as Superstorm Sandy, for instance. That was sort of a, a big, you know, extreme weather event during that time period. Um, but in communication with the book's authors, um, Diane Negra and Julia their interest was in the media event aspect of these large-scale disasters and how this promotion and consumption of what is extreme weather takes up the slack for public conversation societies are not having about environment or this feeling of powerlessness that people have in their environment when they have really no control over it. Um, so in many ways, it was what provided me the lens I needed to understand the mediation of radiation and how weather was actually how media conceptualized it. Um, so it was definitely an abstract before the research um, approach. And so it was a labor intensity writing this article. Great, but sometimes that's how research comes, right? That's how research comes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so the main focus uh, of the context of the article is the Fukushima nuclear disaster of 2011. So why, mm -hmm. why that event? Can you give us a brief introduction on why, what's significant about that event, especially from a media studies perspective? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was in grad school when Fukushima happened, and it wasn't long before that that I was actually living in Japan. I lived in Tokyo for about two years, and so during this time period when this happened, I had quite a lot of acquaintances in Tokyo. I have family in, in the Kansai area of Japan. Um, and so my eyes were sort of fixated on this event when it happened. And I was very you know, concerned, obviously, about my um, acquaintances there um, and their you know, effects of this because they were dealing with this um, you know, international you know, news versus local news aspect, whether they should leave or not leave. Are they safe? Are they not safe? They were very confused because of these two competing systems that we'll talk about um, more, <laughs> of course. Um, but what basically what Fukushima is and sort of a background, because it's, it's 2011, it's quite a while ago now, but I think everybody sort of remembers it. But essentially what happened was on March 11, 2011, there was a magnitude nine um, earthquake. It occurred about 100 kilometers off the Pacific coast of Japan's Tohoku region, um, and it triggered a really devastating tsunami wave. Um, it resulted in over 20,000 deaths. Um, the wave then also breached the protective walls and knocked out the main electricity supply and backup generators for cooling systems that ran about six nuclear reactors at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power station. Um, and what this led to was we had this collapse um, and explosion about three reactors. Um, severe damage to a fourth reactor and the plant's containment systems and then also ocean water sort of invading the facility um, and also escaping it with radioactive materials um, and also escaping into the atmosphere. So I think about 140,000 residents were evacuated um, within sort of a 20 kilometer radiance, radiance um, among the um, uh, perimeters of the plant as well. So we had this sort of mass evacuation. So it's essentially what happened in Japan at that time was this triple disaster. So quite an intense, um, you know, a tense thing to happen to a country. Um, so, you know, for me, that was, you know, my, you know, having that happen and then seeing sort of the news reports of it, I was immediately kind of drawn to learning more about it. Then with Fukushima, 
it's such a big disaster. So we had Chernobyl that happened. All of us kind of know about this from 1986 in Ukraine. Um, and that's one of the worst to date, right? We think it like killed 31 people. It damaged like $7 billion of property. Um, it turned to the WHO. It had estimated that about 4,000 additional cancer deaths were related to it. And Fukushima was actually placed in the same category, um, a seven, which is um, on the international nuclear event scale. It was, you know, only Chernobyl and Fukushima have gone to a level seven. Um, so it was a huge event. Um, it, and Fukushima continues to link radiation, right? Um, so it's an ongoing disaster, um, if you will. Um, and it's just, you know, continues to be something that, um, you know, is fascinating to study um, as horrific as it is as well. Right. Yeah. And as, as you point out, it's, it was a triple disaster. It was right. an earthquake, tsunami, uh, nuclear meltdown, but it was also a media event. And then what's interesting right. is you, your argument and your focus is on um, how media takes up these three disasters and right. um, does all sorts of management of, of risk. One of the aspects that you focus on is what do you call the weatherization of radiation? Uh, which I find fascinating. Can you can you explain what you mean by this concept and mm -hmm. why it's central to to understanding the media response to Fukushima? Um, so it's twofold. One, scientific. Um, so once the containment systems were breached, nuclear reactors exploded, um, and what became the scenario of growing concern was this circulation of radiation within the atmosphere. So radiation, these particles can travel in jet streams in the stratosphere, which is a layer of atmosphere that's about 30 miles above the Earth's surface. Um, and these radiation particles can travel with, you know, wind currents on the Pacific Ocean and then drag, be dragged down with dust or heavier particles by spring storms to settle in soil and drinking water, right? Um, obviously, you know, that's sort of this idea of it becoming weatherized, you know, it, it, it molds into the environment. Um, and, you know, this risk of radioactive contaminated wind and rainfall is dependent on how far it travels. So obviously within Japan, within Fukushima Prefecture, risk was extraordinarily higher for local communities within that evacuation zone. But for the U.S., it was pretty negligible after you know, traveling such a long way over a certain amount of time. Um, and then obviously the other part of weatherization is through the media. Um, so nuclear fallout was taken up and framed as a weather event because, you know, we don't necessarily... Um, we can't really necessarily you know, view radiation. It's invisible. Um, and that's kind of what makes it dubious. So you can't see it, you can't taste it, you can't really feel it. Um, you have to rely on scientific instruments, technologies, or experts to kind of tell you what radiation level is um, and understand the risk of those levels. Um, and so, you know, obviously the average person is not really schooled in understanding what a sievert is or a rad or a rim is, what that means. Um, in media reports, you know, sort of dealing with just numbers um, in, you know, especially the U.S. media reports in the first couple of weeks, they really didn't know how to deal with it either. And so there was a lot of incorrect units that were used, comparison to various averages, x-rays, bananas, um, you know, anything you can imagine confusing citizens. And, you know, that's sort of what's fascinating about this is that when you can't represent it directly, you know, how do you represent it in a very visual environment that is media, right? Um, and I think by thinking about it as weather, it, it kind of prioritized, you know, um, creating you know, visuals through this movement of a plume, if you will, and um, to kind of, you know, have simulations about where, you know, this radioactive cloud is moving and all of this, you know, these decisions kind of be made were, you know, constructing these narratives um, through, you know, weatherizing it, if you will. 
Yeah, I think that's one of the peculiarities of radiation as a as an event mm-hmm. uh, and as a phenomenon is that it resists this visualization, and we're so accustomed to mm-hmm. visualization as a way to make sense of threats, right? So. Yeah. N- without radiation being able to be represented directly, it essentially necessitates mediation in order for um, for the public to make sense of it in any sort of way, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and in Japan, it was sort of the opposite, right? So um, instead, radiation risk was really being subdued. And it was interesting, this was also part of me where I was thinking about the weather aspect of it, where it was in the ordinary weather report. So we think of the weather reports of having, you know, today's, you know, highs and lows, if it's going to rain, if it's not going to rain. So instead, they sort of, in Japan, they just had numbers of radiation levels um, with those other numbers that you get in your ordinary report. Um, and again, that's weatherizing it, right? It's, it's a different way of visualizing it. It's subduing it into something that's everyday and ordinary, while, you know, the weather channel and stuff could be, you know, extreme weather events get kind of visualized in a way that's more shocking or sensationalized. Yeah, yeah so... One of the things you, you compare is precisely this, right? The Japanese uh, media's weatherization of radiation versus U.S. Mm-hmm. media's uh, weatherization of radiation. Right. Um, could, could you talk to us a little bit about these sort of stark differences and how they're related to right. how the media industry is structured in both different countries, how that relates to how they treat it, um, the weatherization of radiation? Absolutely. So in the U.S., we can think of the news as a freelance system. Um, So the Weather Channel, other media outlets, they're not really considered direct conduits for government information. Um, Now, they receive reports from the government or from government organizations. For example, the EPA, um, the Environmental Protection Agency, they, when this happened, they accelerated their routine sampling schedule, right? Um, They have something that's called RADnet, which is a nationwide monitoring system. And so they accelerated a sampling schedule. They did like, you know, disseminated statements to media outlets during this three month period. They devoted a substantial part of its website to providing public with information about what's happening and, you know, continually followed up with that, you know, stating basically there was really not a lot of health concern to be made. But, you know, the channels, the reporting decisions aren't really made on that. They're instead based on capturing market shares, maintaining an audience, providing returns on investment. So what ends up is that coverage is not the objective hazard itself, but the indicators of social and political activity surrounding it. Um, and Japan is really fascinating. This is something I found really fascinating doing my research, You know, knowing that it's not a freelance system, um, because not only do you have broadcast law, um, which is basically a law stating that you know, News reporters need to be politically impartial. They need to avoid disturbing public security. They need to present controversial matters from several viewpoints. Um, and in the event of a disaster, to produce programming that minimizes harmful effects. So you're not going to hear catchphrases or words like catastrophe or massive, just essentialized event. Um, at the same time, they have something that's called press clubs, which serve to control sort of access to and presentation of the news. So you have these specialist reporters who are granted this really exclusive access to certain politicians or government agencies or business organizations. And there's this unspoken understanding that these sources are not, you know, that they're not going to be undermined by unauthorized reports or special investigations, right? Um, And so you have this, you know, relationship between official sources and journalists it discourages independent analysis critique. There's conformity among stations as well, so one looks somewhat like the other in what they're reporting. 
Um, so unlike the sort of dramatic radioactive cloud migrating over the Pacific Ocean, um, which really heightened U.S. residents' anxiety, in Japan, daily forecasts you know, made sort of radiation risk manageable. And along with these government reassurances, benign sort of downplaying any threat. Um, in Japan, it was kind of fascinating because social media became actually really valuable, not only for the disaster as a whole, but in terms of Fukushima really calling out the negligence of the government. Um, so NHK, which is, you know, this um, national broadcasting system um, channel in Japan, um, and they even have more regulations on them than other channels to be, you know, linked with the government. Um, they really, you know, they couldn't do much to kind of sway when they had sort of negative rumors or public trust, you know, when there was damning proof of failures of government oversight. Um, there was delays in disclosing information to the um, public, which was being brought out through social media. There was something called the Speedy Scandal, um, which Speedy is this system for prediction of environmental emergency dose information, which is a mouthful, but it's basically the same thing as RadNet for, e for the EPA. It's basically a simulation system designed to forecast real-time radiation based on measurement data and pre then predict how weather, weather patterns are going to disperse that fallout in the environment. But it was sort of forgotten by the government, like they just forgot it, they had it. Um, and it was actually a physics possession professor on Twitter, um, Hugo Hayano, who drew attention to it and um, you know, was saying, why aren't we using this data? It's here, we need to use it. Um, and not using that data actually put several towns at risk. You know, I think there were towns that were told to evacuate to places that actually were in the pathway of the plume. So this sort of things were happening. Um, and you know, with social media, it kind of pulled in the other direction and, and made people sort of question the news reports that were coming out. Um, so a very different, um, you know, response than, you know, what we had in the U.S. Right. It's, it's interesting in the sense that it's both how the industry structure will mm -hmm. determine the, the goals and the strategies that the producers will, will take, right? If it's right. part of the, the, the clubs, the special clubs, then they will follow the, the government um, directives Absolutely. for fear of never getting that access again. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have something like cable news in the U.S., which its main interest is sensationalism and getting yeah. more viewers. And so how do we play up? anything in some way uh, to do that, right? Right. At the end of it, though, it seems like both responses had some severe drawbacks, right? So you yeah. have the spectacularization of radiation risk has its own problems because suddenly people, uh, especially in the Pacific Northwest, were thinking that their food was contaminated and they were never able to Absolutely. eat anything. And then the opposite side, you have complete negligence and non-communication with people. So whatever the government was officially sending through Japanese uh, news broadcast was actually putting people in danger and, yeah. and having them move into the areas. How did they ultimately compare? Is it, is it, are we, is it both equally bad? Uh, was there any better sense of what could have been done better in any of them? You know, I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, the U.S., I think we are stuck in a system that does this routinely, right? So we have this, um, I, I like using Brian Massini's term, media-driven effective conversion circuit, where you have this, like, two weeks of just, like, an event happens. It, you know, basically saturates our media and our press. Um, and, you know, eventually things kind of, you know, dim out. You know, they, they capture it into human narratives and, you know, 
then a next event happens and the thing happens again, right? You have this immediate sensationalization and then it thins out and the next big event happens. And it leaves this no time for reflection. We don't learn from it. We don't reflect on it or fully reflect on the dangers of the live environment, right? But we have a lot of aging nuclear facilities, right? And um, a more volatile environment with climate change. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think in a way that's, you know, kind of depressing, you know, that we don't have this time to reflect because of the way the media environment sweeps up into certain things. Um, and in Japan, you know, obviously, it, you know, this flawed system ended up with a good thing because it ended up people questioning their, their media and questioning their government um, and seeing that their, the system itself was flawed. Um, so both systems absolutely have their flaws. Um, for me, I definitely would love to have more science-based information provided by experts on the news rather than have sort of muddled and conflict and conspiracy theories. Um, you know, that, that was just, that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, having scientists on TV doesn't, doesn't, doesn't attract as many viewers no, as, no. <laughs> as tragedy and destruction. Right. Um, in, the, in the US context, you refer to this concept that Richard Grusin uses, which is pre-mediation, mm -hmm. um, to explain sort of their approach, especially their approach as the, the weeks went on. Can you explain what, why this concept to think about how the U.S. media was was reporting on on the disaster weeks after? Absolutely. So Grusin came up with this. He, you know, I think it's 2010, and he's just describing this shift. Um, in news's focus after 9-11. So if we think about 9-11 um, and what happened on that day, right, there was a lot of stuff that happened that the press just did not know how to deal with online, right? Um, live broadcasts and this event um, with the two towers, you know, being, you know, with planes flying into it and then obviously collapsing, um, not knowing how to really deal with that event. Um, and so what happened was in order to avoid, you know, this shock, that happened to the new system at that time period, it shifted from detailing the past as sort of pre-mediating the future. That is, pre-mediation is not really correctly predicting the future, but proliferating these multiple remediations of the future to prevent that reoccurrence of a shock. Um, but we see this pre-mediation aspect coming with map simulations. Um, so there was a lot, and so through my sort of constant analysis of news, um, news articles, there was a lot of map simulations being made um, that showcased where there's projected spread of nuclear particles crossing the globe. Um, now, scientists were already doing this. I talked to a couple scientists up at sort of the national laboratories in, in Washington, where they do, you know, they used to do all the nuclear testing. They were already picking up on this, you know, so they were doing this, you know, and already trying to figure out where are these particles going. But even before then, there were sort of simulations of projected, and so it was envisioning sort of that future occurrence again, you know, preventing the shock that something horrible comes to fruition. Um, and of course, when you play these simulations and you see this radioactive cloud, you have this anticipation of that event, um, which produces an anticipation that'll again, probably return you to that page or return you to that event to kind of see what's happening now, right? If it's gonna hit the US at a certain time, what's that gonna look like? Yeah, and it's, so on, the, on one level, it's the advantage of all these new emerging media technologies, mm -hmm. which allow for development of models, right? And yeah. in weather science, it's, the model is the science, right? It's, yeah. it's building on what you do know and how things in the world operate to create this model of what could happen. Mm -hmm. The issue then becomes um, moving this to a, 
as you've previously detailed, a system or an industry where it's interested in capturing viewers' attention, capturing mm -hmm. viewers' attention for, for two weeks at, at most, and then just letting it go. Right. Uh, you can use those same media to basically create possible catastrophe upon possible catastrophe, even if they never come to happen, but you Absolutely. just grab viewers' attention through it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a fascinating sort of move to use those, those technologies for that. Mm -hmm. And the, the creation of these maps, of maps that were either pre-mediating or sometimes purposely misinforming um, becomes even more, it becomes a triple disaster. It becomes even more accentuated with mm -hmm. something like social media, right? Yeah. So you, you write also about um, the, the spread of misinformation in social media yeah. and these sort of altered images and the effect this has on citizens who are just trying to figure out what, what to do, right? Especially the ones who uh, feel like they're in the path of uh, radiation at any given right. point. What are some conclusions that we can get from your research into this incident that, that are still relevant to, I guess, to current disasters that we're, sure, that we're sure. living through? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, it's you know, kind of mentioning sort of thinking about social media and the spread of misinformation. I think that's something we're very aware of um, today. Um, and that was the first thing that interested me in Fukushima um, as well, was just these fake maps that were being spread, these misread maps um, that went viral on social media, and they just were full of fear and, you know, just basically um, kept fueling the fear and uncertainty. So there's this gorgeous map made by NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And it was this really stunning, colorful map that what it actually showed was tsunami waves emanating from the epicenter of the earthquake in the Pacific Ocean. But it was continuously reshared and disconnected from its you know, data. Um, and so people were taking it up as actually showing radiation within the ocean waters instead. And so people were sort of feared that this is, oh my gosh, it's spreading into the oceans from Fukushima. This is all the leaking in. So it was fitting certain agendas or narratives through that. And today, we really see with current disasters, the same thing sort of always happens, where we have this disconnect from the data. Um, so the Australian bushfires that happened um, you know, at the beginning of this year, there was this really powerful visualization of the continent um, on a black background. Its coastline, I mean, coast was engulfed in these data points colored in molten red. Um, it just looked like the whole you know, country was just on fire. Um, it went viral. I think Rihanna even retweeted it. Um, and it was so disconnected from the data because the artist that made it, basically what the artist was doing was taking a month's worth of location points where the fire was detected. It wasn't a real-time image of Australia burning. So it wasn't sort of you were seeing Australia as it was at that time period where everything was on fire. It was just, you know, over a month of locations. And many of those locations were extinguished with the fire, right? It wasn't. Um, but obviously people took that as a literal representation because it got disconnected. And so this disconnect or misunderstanding, especially in dealing with data, is something that's continuously dealt with today. Um, and I think that's just the way that those sort of images are used with either in mass media or in social media. So as we know with um, you know certain websites and things like that, images are where our eyes go, right? We retain visual information better. Social media marketers know this very well. <laughs> you know, they know that they need visuals in order to sell. News organizations know this as well. Maps are these attention-grabbing visuals. Um, at the same time, though, what makes this type of you know, form or media um, is that it, it imparts this sense of credibility. So we have this historical and contextual claims of science, which really privilege the map as a source of objective reason. 
Um, and so maps carry this legacy, which we might call Western historical practice or Confucian scientific worldview, which just cast them as trusted communicators of spatial information. So, and as we know, maps um, or any sort of, you know, chart or form, it's a socially constructed object, right? It's edited, it's constructed. Um, and so, you know, it can be constructed really quite easily to spin a story. Yeah, it's, it's a... Uh... It's too many problems all coming together problems. at once. It is, right? it is, absolutely. It's, it's not even the, the let's think critically about maps as media and as representations and how do we break those down. But then compounded on that is scientific information is heavily politicized mm -hmm. and then heavily politicized and used for entertainment. So it becomes just part of this larger discourse. And then you have something like social media, which allows for a barrage of information to come at absolutely. you all at once from different sources. So even if you were critically analyzing any one piece of information, you suddenly have thousands. So Absolutely. how do you even process that, right? Um, it's a lot, it's a lot. It's a lot. It was quite a lot of social actors involved within you know, one event. Um, and I think that's true for every sort of big event like this. There's just so many people involved within it. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and we're working through it as yeah. still, right? Right. One thing that that your article does, I think, really well is tracing out these two distinct media contexts as we've talked about, right? The the Japanese uh, news industry and then the, the U.S. news industry. And then think about how there's also two different publics, right? So the Japanese public is getting information from their own national service, but then also internationally, because now we have easier access to right. um, to broadcasts from, from elsewhere. What do we learn as students or as scholars from this kind of comparative analysis of thinking about two places, seeing the same event, let's say from two places or from two different publics? Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely, and thank you. I, I think that was something that um, I tried really to strive for to try to unpack both media context within this. And for me, you know, really served as a reminder to delocalize yourself from your space of information gathering. Um, so I always think, I kind of go back to like Eli Pariser's idea of the filter bubble, right, which speaks to sort of our own social media situationness. Um, and we have these like personal algorithms on social media that filter out other voices and our sphere of influence. Um, but it also can be scaled to larger national systems of media practice as well. Um, and having some kind of cognizance of media or the fact that there's different internets, there's different new systems, there's different audience relationships. Uh, and especially when unpacking a global event, it's, you know, you have to sort of see that event through different lenses. Um, and for, you know, students or researchers, it reflects on your own biases. It gives a full picture of that event, um, its repercussions. Um, and I don't talk a lot about it in the article, but it's just also our understanding of place um, gets shifted from um, doing this sort of distinct, you know, <laughs> two different places that, you know, with one event um, research. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned this was an early sort of project in your graduate career. How have you built on it since, um, or expanded on it expanded, since this yes. publication? So since this publication, um, Fukushima continues to be, you know, a focal point in a lot of my research. Um, and, you know, particularly the different media contexts that grew out of the disaster. Um, so I also looked at Japan's tourism industry response to the disaster and sort of post-disaster economic recovery efforts and all of the media campaigns that were reduced from that. So 
tourism industry and you know, its response to this because tourism obviously dropped dramatically in Japan following this disaster. People were not going to Japan, even in regions very far from um, Fukushima. So places that were not affected at all by this, people were, you know, tourism was really shot. And economic recovery often takes place, you know, trying to recover from it. And tourism is a big industry in order to get recovered. Um, so I was looking at, you know, the media production where you know, these are sort of these texts that are capitalizing on disaster and seeing how you know, certain you know, constituencies were playing, you know, what role they were playing. Um, I've looked at also iterations of Godzilla, um, so the film franchise as well. Um, so you know, I was looking at not only sort of during that time period how that was used as a meme or you know, a reference to Fukushima with Godzilla, so there was quite a lot of that. Um, used during that post-disaster period, but also the movie franchises as sort of having this being a symptomatic text of the evolving nuclear threat that was, you know, Fukushima. So um, those have been sort of continuously um, things that I've looked about in this, you know, research. Great. Any, <laughs> beyond, like, the COVID-19 pandemic, any other recent developments in the world or um, in your research since that have... Um, added or gone you back to thinking about these initial arguments that you're proposing in, in this article? Um, but yeah, I mean, it just in general, I think what, you know, I'm seeing, um, especially today, is these similar conversations and fusions towards what is personal risk um, and affirming, sort of reaffirming what it is to live in sort of what we call a risk society, if I'm going to use social theorist Eric Beck's um, understanding of it. And now we're sort of in this era of ecological crisis, environmental risk, right? Where it's not any longer just sort of a, a product, you know, uh, or a manageable side effect of industrial society. It's really doesn't stop at national borders anymore. We have risk production everywhere. So um, just thinking about that in terms of how we assess any sort of risk and the difficulty of that discussion, right? When it's primarily being done in scientific categories and those you know affected by that risk are at the mercy of experts' judgments. But you know, at the same time, you know those questions that we have get muddled in media, right? That defines it, that tries to relay that information to us, um, and you know we have these systems, these freelance systems that further sensationalize it. Um, and so I always, you know, kind of my ongoing interest in Fukushima is also this this lack of reflection on cause and effect. Um, so in the beginning of Fukushima, um, post-disaster, you know, they, and also also in the beginning of the shutdown phase of the pandemic, I should say, there was always hopes by the environmentalists to raise awareness of human actions or inactions that have harmed or harming the planet's ecologies and setting humanity at risk. Um, and, you know, Fukushima, as with nuclear incidents of the past, it always brings some urgency to contemporary debates on nuclear energy technology. Um, you know, it starts to disrupt some nuclear energy agendas in several countries, including Japan. Um, it highlights, you know, the vulnerability of certain aging nuclear facilities worldwide. Um, and I think with the pandemic, we saw, you know, sort of this discussion about climate change and deforestation or pollution and agriculture that makes pandemics actually occur, right? That this thing is going to happen again. We're going to get more viruses because of the way that we're treating the planet. Um, but, you know, what always ends up happening is that we get these moments of, you know, the course, but it just gets swept up and entangled in political controversies, conspiracies. Um, you know, those that are you know, in power and the social dimensions that are responsible for this, you know, sensationalize it. They're just sort of throwing, throwing this, you know, confusion at us. Um, 
And you know, rather than you know, kind of think about larger a larger reflection on what you know we can do to change these realities, we kind of just individualize it into sort of a personal risk um, rather than large, a larger collective learning of what's happening. So I think I just continuously see that happening in the world throughout. You know, we have these major disasters, um, and we're not really changing you know, that part of our our um, society to mediate what's going on. Yeah, it's it's our hope that we could learn from them right. and change. But it seems like we learned that we've repeated the same mistakes of the past, right? right. And just do them all over again with yep. new media. With new media, <laughs> I did want to give a shout out though to um, a digital archive, is Japan Disasters Digital Archive online. So it's this great project out of Harvard University, um, the Institute of Japanese Studies there, and. This archive is this evolving collaborative space for anyone, um, citizens, researchers, students, policymakers. It's a site of shared memory for those directly affected by the events of 311, uh, or 9-11, 9-11, but 3-11. And the digital archive is this you know, great place if you want to learn any more about the Fukushima disaster or the triple disaster that happened in Japan. It has this really advanced search engine of archive materials from all over the web. Um, it's got testimonials, suites, um, you know, any content I can imagine from various different international partners. So it's a great place to start sort of a search. Um, and that's just um, jdarchive.org and it's in English and Japanese. So it's a pretty cool spot. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds great. I hope people will check it out. Yep. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu. Opening sound by Pottington Bear and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.